Welcome to Crisis Leadership Insights, a podcast produced for the University of Southern Queensland's Master of Business Administration. I'm Dr. Daniel Maddock, a digital pedagogy and media specialist and part of the MBA design team. In this podcast series, we talk to leaders from a variety of industries about how organizations can develop strategies to detect potential crises, manage those crises creatively, and leverage what is learned through crises positively. These interviews were recorded via the internet, so please keep this in mind as you listen to this episode. Nia Yari Giam, Jagenba, na Gayabu, Yarrawa peoples, Nia Toowoomba. This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Giabul and Yarrawa peoples in a place called Toowoomba. Our guest for this episode has had one of those chameleon careers that spans sectors, experiences, and countries. He has been the Pope's stage manager, a sound engineer for Prince Charles, apprehended foreign fishing vessels, survived nine cyclones at sea, has investigated violent crimes, fires, and frauds, led over 100 bush firefighters, coordinated the media liaison for the Australian Navy, and is a qualified marksman. Peter Rikers is a very experienced crisis communicator, having performed roles such as the Australian Naval Commander's media advisor during the Gulf War. Peter was also the manager of media and strategy for Queensland's Department of Emergency Services and is a lieutenant commander in the Navy Reserve. He sits on the advisory board of the World Conference on Disaster Management and is a co-founder of Emergency Media and Public Affairs. Peter also lectures at our very own USQ. Peter Rikers, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Peter, you've had a stellar and, and a very exciting career, and um, these days you're in a crisis and disaster consultancy. Can you tell me what that role entails? Uh, yeah, Crisis Ready's been around for about 12 years. In that time, we've uh, been fortunate enough to consult with a vast variety of industries from aviation to airports, three international airports, uh, to childcare, to construction, to infrastructure, and really everything in between. One of the nice things about crisis consulting is every industry at some point is likely to at least wake up to it, or sadly might even need the assistance. You're called crisis ready. That gives me the impression that you can be ready for a crisis. You can manage the crisis. Is, is it possible to be on the front foot, as it were, for a crisis? Uh, yes and no. Yes is the answer from a crisis ready's point of view. Certainly if I get the call, which does occasionally happen from a uh, usually not a client. Uh, I sometimes get the call from somebody who's not a client, but they've been referred to me and in the middle of an incident. So yeah, you can move straight away on that sort of thing. The reason I've, I chose Crisis Ready as a business name is that it's more of a, a philosophy than anything else, is you should be ready. And the reason I say that I rarely get calls from my own clients needing assistance is because they're ready. And one of the things I teach is, you know, how to see a crisis coming and therefore they can deal with it before it becomes a crisis. And that's really important. So it is about readiness. But I guess if you go to the, I mean, you mentioned in the intro there that I work in crisis and disaster. In the disaster operations work like floods, storms, fires, that sort of thing, then you can also be ready in that, first of all, you could be watching to see what's coming. But also I've literally got bags packed for different scenarios that I can throw in the car and move at a moment's notice. So readiness comes in a whole lot, lot of different things. There's the, the business process readiness, there's the mindset readiness, but there's also the practicalities readiness. And, and to me, that's always been a really important part of it. 
You mentioned that you teach um, and you teach uh, with us at, at USQ and at other universities. You've, you've lectured and you, you also, of course, you teach your clients. How would you describe crisis communications? To me, the defining principle of a, of a crisis is a couple of things. First of all, it's a time sensitivity, uh, but mostly it's outrage. So I work on the principle that crisis management is about outrage management. If I can make the outrage go away, then we're just back to dealing with an incident. So if you pick on, let's let's pick a, a really obvious example of, say, Dreamworld, who gave us a fantastic case study on crisis management because they really didn't manage the outrage very well at all. If that outrage had gone away, then it would have been just dealing with the tragic loss of life and the tragedy incident that they were dealing with at the theme park. Instead, most of the time became about the outrage management, and we saw that when they had the shareholder meeting, the press conference, and they really didn't catch on to what they were really managing was outrage. If they'd dealt with the outrage, then they would have been back to dealing with an incident. So that's my philosophical perspective on it, and it works really well. I, I haven't had anyone question that or challenge me on that over the years. It, it's always worked well. The other thing is the time sensitivity factor. If it's Friday afternoon, you get the phone call that there's something horrible happened, and you say, well, we can deal with that on Monday, then you're still in the issue management phase. That's not crisis management. If you say, quick, order some pizzas, we're going to be here for a long time, then you know you're in crisis management mode. So time sensitivity and dealing with outrage is how I define it. So if we go back to the dream world example, if the ride had broken down in the same way with no one on it, then that practical issue is an incident that needs to be fixed. The ride gets shut down, perhaps there's uh, some communications around it being closed and needing to be fixed. Maybe the whole site closes down and they need to check every ride. But what's different, I guess, is the outcome. The outcome being that in that scenario, there is no outrage. But because the incident caused death, that became the primary thing that needed to be dealt with. No, look, I, I look at it differently to that. It's not a question of that there was death and therefore there was outrage. You can have death and no outrage if it was inevitable, if it was, dare I say, somebody behaving foolishly and, and you know, well, let me give you an example that I've used as a, a training example over the years. Imagine that you're at a construction site and there's a young worker who is a bit of a clown. He skylarks on the site, he climbs up the scaffolding, never wears safety harness, never wears his helmet, all of those sort of things. One day he falls and is killed and all of the workers all stand, well, you know, that's sad for his family, but it was always going to bloody happen, wasn't it? He was just a clown. So there we've got, you know, a tragic death for a family, but no outrage. Let's take the same scenario again, but in this case, the union reps have gone to the management complaining about the quality of the safety harnesses. They're cheap imports. They're not good. We're not sure that they comply with Australian standards. We want them replaced. The management goes, well, they're the ones we've got. Deal with it. One day, one of those harnesses fails. A worker falls off the scaffolding and is killed. Now we've got outrage. So you can have outrage and death. You can also have a disaster where there's no outrage, of course. If we know floods are coming, that can impact a community for you know weeks and and make it very hard for them. But if they know the floods are coming, they know that you know if this is what happens, then you don't necessarily have outrage. Typically in disaster operations, we'll have outrage because of failure in warnings, in you know, people not being told either accurately enough or not being told in time for you know decent preparations. And we saw that in the Lismore floods a few years back, where 
the CBD was suddenly closed and people didn't have enough time to move out and to, to get their businesses ready for that sort of thing. In that case, it was mostly around the rain happened in a particular way that was pretty much unheard of. But there's still outrage, even though there was probably very little that could have been done in that case. So, yeah, it's not just about no death. Uh, it can be about, there can be horrible death. But if it just happened, for whatever reason, a bird strike taking out an aircraft, you know, a pilot can't be blamed for that. An airline can't be blamed for that. How would you approach a crisis with regards to both the communications? We've talked about crisis scenarios just now. How would you approach those types of crises with regards to both communications, but also the management of the crisis itself? And how do they go hand in hand? Okay, well, let's go back to the planning phase, first of all. Ideally, the organisation will have some good plans in that they'll have worked out what are the likely scenarios they're going to be dealing with. If you are an airport, then, you know, the obvious ones are going to be plane crashes, plane incidents, as well as landside incidents such as terminal fires, terminal closures, those sort of things. Um, so you can think about those things in advance and you can therefore get your communication strategy ready in advance. And on the day, all you're doing is filling in the gap as to what flight number, what airline, number of people on board, those sort of things. The important part of that process is also to engage the legal department because on the day of the crisis, the boss is going to have two people in their ears. There's going to be the comms person uh, in one ear saying we need to get out there and talk. And legal are going to be saying, don't talk, whatever you do, don't talk, don't talk, don't talk. We need to have that conversation long before a crisis happens to make sure that legal are on board with what we're going to say and they've agreed to those key messages well up front. That works really well. And in fact, I've had one of my Gold Star clients actually had a legal officer in their emergency communications team for that role. And she was in that team all the year round in rehearsal and practice and so on. And she was a fantastic asset to that team. And it meant that they were able to move much more quickly to get communication out there. So in the advanced stage, we can be thinking about as much as possible what our messages are going to be, what we're going to need to get out there. You can also do things like pull together fact sheets. We'll use the airport example again, the number of flights per day, the number of uh, on average plane crashes per annum, those sort of things. Fact sheets like that can be given to journalists. It'll help fill column inches for them when we don't know a lot because typically in a crisis, the first two hours, we're not going to know a lot at all. I remember back to uh, working communications on a cyclone in Queensland and for two hours, we knew absolutely nothing about what was happening. Uh, we literally got a phone call from the mayor in the area who only got one word out before his phone dropped out and that was devastation. You're typically having to deal with very, very limited information to be able to move quickly. And one of the things I've always said about a crisis plan is it's exactly the same as a business plan. It's just based on having less time and less information. You're still making decisions. You're still making business decisions, but with less time and less information. So that's in the planning phase. We've done all that and hopefully we've done some exercises and training to support all that to make sure it all works. On the day, we need to be able to move incredibly quickly feed out as much information as we can. The old line, tell it all, tell it fast. You need to get it all out there as quickly as you possibly can. You can also anticipate the questions. You know what the media are going to be asking. So you can you know, anticipate what those questions are going to be and then liaise with the operations people to tell them that you're going to need these answers, answers to these questions. And building that relationship with the operations people uh, is incredibly valuable uh, well in advance. 
Uh, and ideally, we will have exercised with them to make sure that they know the questions we're going to ask. And you can also, if you're working in a government department, those questions are likely to be the questions that the minister wants to know as well. So whatever the minister's going to know is what the media's going to want to know. And there's no point in operations producing information that's not useful to those. They're going to need that and they're going to have to answer the minister's questions. So we can train them well up front as to what they're going to be asked and how to get that information out there. Peter, can you walk me through a crisis scenario from beginning to end? One of the challenges about my line of work is that most often I can't tell the stories about the actual crisis because if I've done it well, you don't know about it, the media doesn't know about it, and the public doesn't know about it <laughs> um, because we've made, managed to make that outrage go away. Um, so I have limited stories uh, that I can tell that way. Let's just walk through a scenario. Um, I won't give a real-world example as such, but let's walk through a scenario. I've got some some things that I've been through in, in my time as to what worked and what didn't work. I'll tell you one that didn't work well. For a time, I was in the Navy um, then in the Navy Reserve, and in that time, I uh, went over to Iraq uh, and was based in Baghdad as the coalition media director. Uh, this is back in 2003, so not long after the fighting had finished, I was in there, and there was literally no public affairs plan. There was no plan for what we're going to do. I had no direction as to what I could do, what I couldn't do, apart from the obvious and that makes it incredibly difficult. And it wasn't until some two years later when actually a now good friend of mine who I didn't meet at the time was sent in there to actually write the plan. But uh, when I was there, we had no plan. Often that meant that we couldn't communicate as well as we want to because we either didn't have the information or one of the key rules we had there, which was a huge failing, was that we could only tell journalists what we'd been told from the Joint Operations Centre. Now, the Joint Operations Centre is where all of the fighting is coordinated from for the whole of Iraq. So they were constantly dealing with car bombings, roadblocks being run, um, shootings, uh, all the nasty stuff. They weren't, for example, being told that a new lot of books had arrived to uh, go to a particular school or that air conditioning had been restored to a hospital or that uh, we had new fire trucks arriving for the Baghdad Fire Service or that garbage collection. Uh, was now going to be throughout Iraq, not just what was in basically the, the Ba'athist suburbs uh, before we arrived. So there was a whole lot of good news stories that we weren't allowed to tell. We could only say what had come from the Joint Operations Centre. And probably the, the worst example of that was when we did know things had happened, but because the Joint Operations Centre didn't know about it, we couldn't tell it. Classic example of that was the day the UN headquarters was blown up. Um, this is back in, I think it was August, September 2003. I was in the green zone. I heard an explosion. We looked up and we saw off in the distance a puff of smoke. We grabbed a map and we tried to roughly work out where it was and there was a police compound nearby. So we figured it was probably a car bombing at a police compound. Um, we rang through to the Joint Operations Centre to say what's going on. The journalists who were with us were all keen to know what was happening. And then uh, the Joint Operations Centre said they didn't have any information. Nothing had happened. And I was saying, well, something has happened. There was an explosion. We saw the cloud of smoke. And they said, no, nothing's happened. And eventually, CNN had a camera crew on the ground and they were filming it. It was going live to air from Atlanta long before the military had actually caught up with what was happening. So, you know, that example of not being able to tell a story, even though we didn't really know what it was, but we could at least confirm that we were aware there was an explosion. Um, we couldn't even do that because of those rules. So having a good set of rules is really important 
to provide your team with what they can do, what they can't do, having the plan up front. I, I can't overemphasize the importance of the plan. Peter, we've been talking about a lot of high-end crisis management. If you're in a small business or a small setting, a small council, regional council or something like that, do you really have to be prepared for crisis management? Is it something that's going to happen to you on your watch when you only have, say, 25 employees in your organisation? I'll give you two answers to that. One is yes, because you just don't know it might happen. Um, and it doesn't have to be big uh, effort to be able to get ready. Um, it should be proportional to the size of the organisation, but also probably more so it should be proportional to the uh, level of complexity that you could be dealing with. Say you're a regional library, then you're probably not going to face so much outrage. But if you're, say, a childcare centre, then that can turn pretty ugly pretty quickly. The second answer I'll give is also yes, but it's because that building crisis readiness is a fantastic team building exercise. It's a great way to bring your team together and get them working together. I remember many years ago, I was working on a big infrastructure project and um, uh, your students may not know about alliance structures, but alliance is basically a team of companies that come together to deliver a particular project, you know, to go local, the Toowoomba Second Range Crossing was delivered by a group of alliance companies. They formed together to make an extra company that is now going to deliver that project. Now, one of the complications with that is that some of those companies might actually be competitors on a different project. So trying to build a team there can be really complicated. I was working on a, a very big project a number of years ago that had five alliances delivering five different projects all reporting to one corporate head office that was made up of 20-something different companies. And within those 20-something companies, just at the head office, there were competitors. So that can become really, really challenging. I was technically part of the broader PR team, but I was focused on the crisis management aspects of the whole project, the, the huge project it was. But some of the, the young team of the PR people set up a great day around International Talk Like a Pirate Day, which is, I can't remember, 24th, 25th, somewhere around there of September, I think it is. So they had a morning tea, people dressed up as pirates. The environmental scientist on the project gave a monthly briefing in pirate speak that was absolutely brilliant. Uh, she was just superb. <laughs> you know, at, at, that just seemed like a fun thing. And yes, it was a bit of a team building thing. But I said to the young PR types at the end of it, thank you for that. That was fantastic for me. And they said, why? And I said, well, that helps build the team. And building the team is going to be vital if we have to go through a crisis. I can't just write a brilliant plan and maybe run a couple of exercises and just put it aside and think that the team's going to come together on the day. So coming back to your question, um, a good part of crisis readiness is team building and team building is a good part of crisis readiness. Team building is you know, invaluable for every organisation um, and to put people through a scenario and to get people working together and understanding that your uh, priority is going to be different to my priorities on the day builds a mutual understanding in the office, which becomes really useful in, shall we call it, peacetime. Coming back to the first part of my answer about the complexity of it, I mean, it could be as simple as coming up with a, a business card-sized document that sits in your wallet as to who you've got to call on the day. What are the things we can do? What are the things we can say? Who do we have to make sure that we notify? Uh, those sort of simple steps don't need to be huge and complicated. But it's worth doing all the way around as to how are we going to communicate to our key stakeholders. You know, classic example where, you know, we're all totally reliant on having our phone numbers saved on phones these days. We don't write them down. We don't print them off and so on. What if the phones go down? Um, how do we access numbers? 
simple things like that can be really important. So, yes, everyone needs to be ready, but it should be proportional to, I guess, the risk they face, but also proportional to the size. A small organisation can take small steps to be very ready. Is it possible to reframe a crisis to get a positive outcome? All right, you're probably uh, sort of without saying it, you're, you're talking about the, the the old thing that John F. Kennedy said where the two Chinese characters for crisis are um, danger and opportunity. I've actually had students who were Chinese and I've checked it with them and opportunity is not so much opportunity, it's more think of it as a fork in the road. It's a point where we have to make a decision. Now, if you turn one, day, one way down the road, it might be a bad choice the other way might be a good choice. I'm not a big one for talking up that a crisis is an opportunity for uh, a gain. Uh, It can happen, but I'd really rather my clients didn't go into a crisis with that in mind. I don't think it's necessarily helpful. Uh, I think uh, understanding risk and understanding vulnerability uh, is much more valuable in terms of getting them to take it seriously and focus on what's really, really important. Yes, it's possible by managing outrage really well in a difficult situation, you could come out of it looking much, much better than you did before. But don't forget that you're there because there was a crisis. Something happened that caused the outrage. So you can't necessarily erase that outrage from people's memory. And these days with this thing we call the internet, memories are very, very long. You know, there are you know things on the internet that we wish would go away and they don't go away. So yes, it is possible, I guess, but uh, it's not in my playbook to think about the opportunity and, and to try and talk it up that way. Peter, you've shared lots of valuable advice with our students today on the podcast, but, but what's one piece of advice that you could give to them, keeping in mind that when they graduate this course, they're going to be heading into uh, management, middle management, maybe even if they're lucky, some leadership positions. What sort of thing should they keep in mind about crisis? I couldn't get it down to just one. Uh, that, that That's unfair. Um, <laughs> I, I think I'll, I'd use my the byline that I use, which is borrowed from Shakespeare, which is borrowed from Hamlet, and that is the readiness is all. Hamlet knows there's something bad coming. Um, all you can do is be ready and wait. Uh, if you think back to one of my favourite films, The Untouchables, Sean Connery gives that great speech when, when they're in the hut about to do the raid at the Canadian border. Don't want it to happen. Don't wish for it to happen. It'll happen when it happens. So being ready is all you can do. Take your time, think it through, play with some scenarios. Ideally, get somebody from outside, and I'm not just plugging my own business there, but get an outsider to think about scenarios because it's worth wargaming scenarios that are not the ones that are expected. I'll give two quick examples from, um, and this was because they both got into the news, Auckland Airport. I did uh, some work with them some years back. Uh, We used to do a thing called a crisis drill, which is a quick video that we would send them. The team would get together, watch the video, and they had 20 minutes to respond. Uh, This is a weekly exercise they'd do. And typically the scenario would be either to team build or or it might be to run a very quick meeting because that's really important in a crisis. So it was a kind of a, a quick exercise scenario. One time, and I think, I mean, you know, those guys were fantastic and they made huge commitment. But one time they kind of blew it off. The exercise was given to them on a Tuesday. We showed them a video, which we downloaded some video and we'd edited it together. Basically, a, a dog was in one of those travel crates on the tarmac and somehow escaped from the crate. In trying to round the dog up, the dog was killed, got run over by a, a security vehicle. They had 20 minutes to give us some talking points. 
they fired back some talking points in about three minutes, which were not very good, not very well thought through, but they ticked the box. Um, the boss was away that way, and that's another key lesson is the boss is always away. That was on the Tuesday. On the Friday morning, we saw the headlines that a, a dog, a, a trainee detector dog, had escaped in the airport, was running somewhere around the um, airfield. All takeoffs and landings were suspended. Um, eventually, the dog was tracked down. They tried to give it treats. They tried to give it toys. They did everything they could to coerce it back, and they couldn't. And eventually, the dog was shot by a sniper. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So on the Tuesday, they had a perfectly good opportunity to work through a scenario. On the Friday, they got dragged through it. And if you Google Auckland Airport and I think it was Grizz the dog, uh, it went on for weeks. It got international coverage. It was huge. Oh, how terrible. Um, There was another scenario where we basically um, stopped the fuel supply at the airport. So an airport has got a, let's think of it as a service station, that fuels all the aircraft. Um, we had some technical faults there that cut it off. By now, they'd learnt post the Grizz the Dog story to take these things seriously, and they handled that one really well. A few weeks after that, um, the only pipeline from the only oil refinery in New Zealand got cut by a farmer. So there's one pipeline that goes from the north of the North Island down to Auckland, and depending on what they're transporting that day, it might be diesel, it might be unleaded, it might be uh, aviation fuel, depending on what's needed in uh, around the, the country, uh, that pipeline got cut. The um, airport had something like two weeks of supply left. And so we had the scenario where planes were refueling in, say, Brisbane before they flew over because they knew they wouldn't be able to get fuel in Auckland. So thinking about Odd scenarios and odd uh, challenges can be really useful. I'm sorry, I'm, I've waffled on there. You you asked me for one key lesson. I'll go back to it. The readiness is all. Absolutely. Preparation. It's that five Ps again. Peter, thank you very much for coming on the show and all the experiences you've shared with us today. Pleasure. Great to talk. Thank you. Information about our guests can always be found in the podcast show notes in your podcast app or on the course site. This has been a University of Southern Queensland podcast.